alone on my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are delusion. In the balances they go up. They are put there together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Those are verses 5 through 12 of Psalm 62. It's along with Psalm 61, the Psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, September the 14th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that very much. Uh, we're continuing our look at the, at the life of Elijah and the kings uh, Ahab of, of northern kingdom of Israel, of Israel, Samaria. Both are kind of used interchangeably. Um, and so we're looking at 1 Kings 21, verses 17 to 29. In um, the epistle, it's 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 31. And the gospel is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. So remember yesterday, what we had seen was is that, that Ahab, the king, the wicked king, <clears throat> in Jezreel goes to Naboth, a man of Jezreel, who owns a vineyard there, and offers to either buy it or exchange it for another vineyard. And Naboth won't sell it because it's the inheritance of his fathers. It's a family farm that's been passed down through many generations, and he won't give it up for that reason. Elijah gets, or Ahab gets upset. His wife, Jezebel, sees it and contrives to have Naboth stoned in order that Ahab can take over the, the vineyard without any problem. So here's where we get now. So that's happened. And then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Doesn't that sound a lot like Nathan the prophet coming to David after the affair with, with uh, Bathsheba? It does to me. It sounds like there's a very similar kind of a thing going on here. He took the one thing this man had when he had much possessions. And so here he lays claim to the one thing this man had, and he does so by killing him just as David did with Uriah the Hittite in order to get his wife when David already had multiple wives. So here Elijah goes down and, and says, have you killed and also taken possession? And the Lord says, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. It's going to happen the same way to you, big fellow. It's going to happen in the same place. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Meaning, before that he called him the troubler of Israel, as though he were the problem. And instead what happens here is Elijah turns this whole thing around. He answers, I found you because you sold yourself to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. What he's saying here is, I'm not your enemy. God's your enemy. And it's because of you. Because you sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. He's holding him, Ahab, to account for this. Why? Jezebel did it. But she did it in the name of Ahab. And it's the same basic principle 
here that, that holds from Genesis 3, right? I mean, who does God hold accountable? Who do we all hold accountable? It's the sin of Adam, right? I mean, everybody knows those three words. Nobody ever talks about the sin of Eve. They only talk about the sin of Adam. And it's because he, Ahab, was the one who had the word of God. Jezebel is a foreign princess. Her family worships Baal and his consort slash wife, Asherah. And you, Ahab, are the one who's responsible for this, whether she did it or you did it. He says, Behold, I'll bring disaster upon you. I'll utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Asha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you've made Israel to sin. You led my people astray. Your leadership was under my authority, and I'm the one who put you there. And you led Israel astray and caused them to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said that dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. This palace from which you claimed Naboth's vineyard, yep, it's not going to go well for her there. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. He says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel's wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. I mean, to his credit, he received the word of the Lord. He received the, the notice that he had sinned. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Reminds me of Jonah and Nineveh, right? When, when Jonah goes and proclaims, uh, yet 30 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And Nineveh, including the king and all the animals, repented. And so... It's the same thing. And God spared that judgment for that time. For that time. <laughs> Being the operative part of that. It's important that we recognize judgment delayed is not judgment foregone. And so here in the gospel now, we get this, there's a wicked king. Again, right? I mean, Herod is wicked. Wicked in the sense that he allowed his wife, Herod's a Jew, he allowed his wife, who had been his brother's wife, John had criticized because of this marriage. He allowed his wife to overrule what he wanted. He did not want John to put, be put to death, but his wife did. And ultimately, after her daughter danced for him, he put John to death at her request. He did an evil thing at her request. But Herod is the one who's held responsible. But anyway, there's an evil king. And that evil king is over the uh, Judah, over the land of Judah, but not up in the Galilee. That's a different person who's there. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, he, Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And remember that Matthew 
particularly is writing to the Jews, which I always find to be quite ironic, since Matthew would have been rejected by most of the Jews. Remember when Matthew's called, he has a feast at his house, and he invites a, a class of two classes of people, tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees come, and they ask the disciples, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? But that's not exactly what they ask. They ask, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the disciples probably wondered the same thing, too. So it's odd that Matthew writes in order to convince the Jews who despised him. But he still cares deeply about his people. That's the thing, is, is that the difference between Elijah or Ahab and Matthew is, is that, that Ahab didn't care about anybody but himself. He was so self-centered, it was unbelievable. Until he finally gets confronted with his sin here, he realizes Elijah's not his enemy. He's the one bringing the word of God to him. And in Matthew, what you get is a guy who has been rejected by his own people and seen Jesus rejected by his own people, and yet he still loves them. He loves them enough to reach out to them and write a gospel specifically quoting all the fulfillment of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in order to convince the people who hated him and who hated Jesus that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's the kind of attitude we need to begin to take in our own lives. Whoever it is that we consider our enemies, we need to love enough to tell them the truth. And we need to love them enough to tell them the truth in a way that they can receive it. Not telling them in judgment, but, but praying and asking the Lord, how can I share the gospel with this person who hates me and who hates the cross? How do, how do I share it with somebody who's a raging atheist who hates God, even though God doesn't exist, <laughs> and, and who, who thinks less of me simply because I believe? And that's what Matthew does. And Elijah doesn't take up the... the challenge from Ahab that, oh, my enemy has found me. He doesn't call himself his enemy. He doesn't speak personally at all. He speaks the words of the Lord. And that's what we need to be better at. We, we need to care enough to be able to do that. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is John's message. John, who had just been killed, who we see here. In, in the epistle for today, from 1 Corinthians we're getting Paul making a, a pointing further to Jesus. And remember yesterday, the, the deal was that he had to say, hey, was Paul crucified for you? How about Cephas? How about Apollos? No, don't be divided. Be of one mind and of one judgment. And that mind and that judgment is focused completely on Jesus because it's him that matters, not me. I'm just the messenger. He says, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. Parenthetically, that's a quote from Paul. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And it's from the way that he's talking about this. He talks about wisdom, folly, and then belief. He says, so the, it, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. So, so there's no wisdom in what we preach. It's folly, he says. But it's the belief in the folly we preach that leads to salvation. And so the question then becomes, are wisdom and belief opposed to one another? And, and 
The answer is no. The answer is actually, it depends on where your wisdom comes from. Because he's already said, worldly wisdom. The world didn't know God through wisdom. Because its wisdom never saw this. It's not through wisdom, it's through revelation. He says that we know these things. And, and so when we talk about belief and what belief can be challenged, what we can talk about, the belief that can be challenged is not that Jesus lived, because there's proof of that. It's not that Jesus was crucified, because the, the epistles and the gospels were written in the same time frame that people who lived had seen these things or not seen them, could have disputed them. So th there could be a ton of disputation concurrently with the publication of the Gospels and the Epistles, but there were not. So you can believe in those things with the same sort of certainty you can say, I believe that Plato existed. Because there's a written record contemporaneously with the events that attests to the truth. And no one disputed these things. The, the thing that can be disputed, the, the thing that calls for belief is the meaning of those things. Was Jesus resurrected from the dead? Well, Paul says it's attested by about 500 different people. And the disciples wrote these things in the living memory of those who would have been around to dispute those things. So the meaning of that can be disputed. But, but that you believe that Jesus existed that he died on a cross and was resurrected from the dead are things that are attested. Now, you have to discern and believe whether he's the Son of God and does his resurrection mean that we too will be resurrected by belief in his name. So, so wisdom and belief are not opposed to one another. But what you commit yourself to believe about those things opens up new doors of wisdom. That's a, a philosophical point argued by William James in an essay called The Will to Believe that was published in 1897. He says that, that, that having faith in something opens you to new sources of information, wisdom, and knowledge. Now, some of those things it can open you to are lies. So you have to be careful in discerning. And, and in our case, you have to be careful in discerning in prayer and in community. Because your truth can't be opposed to the truth, the truth that's been preached. And so that's the important distinction here. And then he says, Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And the reason that the sign of the crucifixion is at a front and a stumbling block to Jews is, is that, it, <clears throat> that Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 say, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body should not remain all night on the tree. But you should bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. That's the reason that the, the soldiers had to make sure the three on the cross, on the crosses, were dead by the end of that evening, so that they might be buried that day. But a cursed man can't be Messiah. And he said, and it's also, it's not a stumbling block to Jews only, it's a folly to Gentiles, because a dying God doesn't make any sense. He said, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The, the foolishness of God is how a cursed man could also be Messiah, and the weakness of God would be a dying God. 
He said, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. So pointing at you now, he says, but God chose what's foolish in the world, those things that were low in the world, not those things that were high in the world, in order to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All he's saying is everything's about Jesus. Don't boast in me. Don't boast in Paul. Don't boast in Apollos. Don't boast in any of those things. We used to be enemies of the cross, but God's mercy to you is your salvation. The mercy to you is that you now have received the Holy Spirit, which allows you to know and to believe and to continue to grow in wisdom and knowledge and strength in the power of Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies. But we've got to do something that you would almost never hear commended, right? We've got to, we've got to come like Ahab. We have to confess our wickedness. We have to bring it to him. We have to repent in sackcloth and ashes if we're to receive all that's on offer from him. And he is able to do more than you can ask or imagine. But we have to bring him as filthy rags. What we receive from him is riches and power and glory and honor. In the name of Jesus.